Greetings. This is the return of the Paleo Protestant podcast with uh, three confessional Protestants who happen to teach uh, history at Hillsdale College. That would be myself, DG Hart, uh, Hare Moss, uh, Corey Moss, <laughs> who's recently been um, uh, I'm not appointed as the department chair starting next fall um and then miles smith teaches american history here as well um i'm the presbyterian dr moss is the lutheran and dr smith is the anglican and we're going to talk today about uh confessional protestants in the news and a lot of that is coming from the world of anglicanism which raises questions that we really can't get to we need to bring on a journalist at some point and talk to someone who covers religion why uh which confessional churches get more attention than than not um and why anglicans may more than lutherans or or presbyterians but we don't need to get jealous about that now um but there was a story recently uh april 24th on the um Various places, Christianity Today had it, uh, Juicy Ecumenism had it, but this is Anglicans aspire to reorder the communion. And GAFCON, which stands for the Global Anglican Future Conference, um, GAFCON, is reordering the Anglican communion in the world, and it's moving away the way some of the stories explain it from the see of Canterbury as the first among equals among the bishops. So um, Miles, this is your chance to weigh in on matters Anglican. Yeah. So um, GAFCON is the um, annual meeting of the primates from around the primates is a fancy word for bishops, bishops, um, around the Anglican communion um, who uh, caucus, if you want to use that term with GAFCON, uh, which is the global um, Anglican futures conference. Um, GAFCON is largely comprised of African, South Asian um, and uh, East Asian primates. Uh, There's a few Primates from the, it's basically the old British Commonwealth minus uh, the Church of England uh, and the Church of Ireland. Hmm. Um, and so uh, the primates got together. And this year, the big news was that they uh, publicly rebuked and broke, uh, broke uh, communion, as it were, with the Archbishop of Canterbury. And so they issued something uh, that's called the Kigali, uh, Kigali Commitment, Kigali Statement, uh, GAFCON met in Kigali, which is the capital of Rwanda. Uh, Rwanda has one of the larger Anglican churches, uh, one of the world's largest Anglican churches. And so what that did was basically um, say, first of all, that uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, it's not just in error that he's sinned and that he's publicly not acting in a way that's consistent with his office um, and that he needs to repent to be returned to full communion. communion with the rest of global Anglicanism. Um, and it also said that the, that the uh, instrument of communion had failed, meaning that the idea that if you're communion with Canada in commi- that you're 
the idea that if you're in communion with Canterbury, that's what makes you a true Anglican has failed. And so <laughs> essentially it changed the framework. Uh, very, it, it, It's at once not a big deal, and yet it's also a huge deal because there's nothing necessarily on the ground that changes. My church didn't change last week when I went um, because of the Kigali commitment. But what it means is, is that most of the world's Anglicans now no longer see communion with Canterbury as the mark of what is a true Anglican church, that that communion with Canterbury is no longer uh, an instrument of communion. And so it means that the, the global Anglican communion will change uh, tremendously. And it also means that to a certain extent, uh, Europe, in, especially the Great Britain, is no longer going to play the same role in um, the global Anglican communion as that it has for since uh, really, really the communion was formed in, in around 1880 or so. Hmm. Uh, I mean, in some ways, it is it, it's a controversial to do this. I mean, uh, I, I, I guess from an outsider's perspective, it looks like um, I know the Sea of Canterbury is not the Sea of Rome. But there's a there's a way in which the way I've read about English Protestant history in the Church of England, um, and I'm getting ready to teach a course on imperial Christianity, which is sort of part of these reflections, that the See of Canterbury functions for Anglicans like the See of Rome does, even though it's it's there's not that kind of um, Canterbury sovereignty the way papal sovereignty functions for Roman Catholics. So, but I yeah, mean, it is, it is a way of kind of thinking. Well, that assumption is a, is a 20th century assumption. So one of the interesting things is if you read Episcopalians and the church of Ireland in the 19th century, they don't really think about Canterbury as uh, being at all authoritative. So it's hmm. sort of what it's, it's, um, it's a ritualist creation of the early 20th century. It's sort of trying to, to set uh, the English church up as kind of this almost pseudo Romish alternative to Rome. Right. So it's really kind of an Anglo Catholic thing. Um, can, can I, go, can I follow up on that, Daryl? Sure. Um, cause, cause Miles, you, you phrase this, I, I think very carefully and very intentionally. And, and I think the communique from Kigali does so as well, that, that they no longer recognize <clears throat> the Archbishop of Canterbury as an instrument of unity. Right. Um, would, would you go so far as to say, or would they go so far as to say that communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury is an indication that you are not a true Anglican. It looks like that's where it's headed. Um, hmm. I think this is, this is the question is, is this broken communion or is this impaired communion? Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I, I think that um, the document that was issued is much closer to the former. Um, and this is where it's it is controversial because there's a lot of people who don't like Canterbury that have this kind of almost sentimental relationship with it. It's it's almost like a sociocultural 
relationship rather than a liturgical one. It's sort of like we want to believe that we have some connection to the Church of England because they're the original. Um, you know, it's 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 almost like an ingredient has changed in your favorite recipe. It doesn't mean that the the the, the thing is is gone, but now you just have to use different ingredients than you one did. And there's this almost kind of sentimental sense sense of loss. And so, yeah, what's interesting though is that there are quite a few primates who are basically like, no. This is us shaking the dust off of our feet. Um, if you are, in, if you're really worried about being in communion with Canterbury, then you're probably not interested in being what it is to be a true smaller Orthodox Anglican. So, absolutely, I think that's that's where a lot of the energy is going. And and West African uh, leadership um, is probably somewhat uh, most. In, I don't want to say enthusiastic. They've had the gravest sense of their interrelationship with Canterbury. One of the things that's very interesting is that the Archbishop of Canterbury does not have a tremendous amount of control over his bishops compared to other national churches. Um, The Archbishop of Canterbury is not particularly powerful um, Mm. vis-a-vis his own church. He's not even the only Archbishop in Great Britain. Right. Yeah, right. York as well. And so uh, this is this is where in the Episcopal Church for a long time, the sort of the disposition was to accuse uh, Canterbury of being um, essentially a, a state-controlled church in the worst way, uh, because Parliament controlled it and not the monarch. This was actually an accusation from the rest of the Anglican communion. It would have been much better if you guys have actually been controlled by the monarch instead of parliamentary committees. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, uh, what's Anglican polity is such that the a diocese is the fundamental unit of the church, not an archdiocese, not even a national church. Um, and so in as much as that's actually the technical way that uh, polity works in the, in the Anglican communion, it's going to be interesting to see how much kind of the trickle down of some of the fracture of national churches and the fracture of the communion uh, what that ends up affecting kind of at the, at the local level. Um, I mean, my, my parish, uh, only the kind of the, the people who are, um, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of people in my church who don't even think about the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, largely because this is just kind of a local church that they found and they, they feel comfortable in. Um, so it didn't even register, um, at my parish. I'm, I, uh, but there are places where it would. I think I think older TEC churches, um, the older the communicants, the more this will probably rattle them. Uh, my church is not particularly old, uh, but XTEC churches in, in ACNA, um, churches with uh, sort of people who were involved in church bureaucracy. Um, there's kind of always this, there was always this kind of thrill. Oh, we went over to see uh, the, you know, uh, the Lambeth or something like that. So, it, it's it's almost a socio-cultural uh, papalism rather than a liturgical one. Um, so I think. So what is, what what do you think it will mean for you know the the evangelicals who have found their way out of Presbyterian and Baptist churches into the into ACNA? And you've said on this in our recordings many times, several times that this Anglicanism is kind of this. Uh, part of of moving up 
socioeconomically and liturgically and religiously. And I would think for some of those people that they wouldn't like the bad vibe that comes from breaking yeah. with, I mean, chances are those people are also Anglophiles of a kind. Um, so this sort of cuts off that oxygen from that yeah. part of the world anyway. I mean, do you think this, how will those people react? Well, I think it, it will. Um, this is just a guess. This is a great question. My guess is that um, there's the sort of demographic of centrist evangelicals that have kind of floated in to some Anglican provinces will find this harder to stomach because um, I, I've even seen, you know, the suggestion that this is sort of a fundamentalist takeover of the Anglican hmm. Union. So I, I think what will happen is on the ground, there will be uh, the Anglican communion has been moving to the right. Um, at the, I'll say the, the, the broad right, whatever that means, theolo- theologically, uh, not so much politically. Um, but uh, this is viewed as the sort of pugilistic thing that, that a certain sort of conservative right wing evangelical does. Now, I'm sure that most of the primates, uh, the black African primates, at Kigali would be surprised to find out that they are sort of you know, <laughs> white right wing, uh, you know, Fox News watching uh, uh, evangelicals. But I think that's that's there's a perception that this is um, that this is sort of almost a warmongering move by conservatives in in the communion. So I think what it might mean is on the ground that Angli- that ACNA um, moves to the right. So you, I think <laughs> you'll find. Um, it will be a different crowd that probably goes Anglican in the next few years. Um, I don't think it will necessarily dry up. I, I think if anything, it will make it a little bit easier uh, for Anglican rectors and, and guys just who are on the ground sort of talking about church with people, you will be able to present it very differently um, than, you know, sort of like that we're, we're, a, you know, sort of downstream from the church of England. Uh, that might have been true historically, but how many how many Presbyterians tell people come to my church? We're downstream from the Church of Scotland. It doesn't really happen um, that much. Or you know, Lutherans don't say, "Yeah, we're downstream from you know Saxon State churches" or, or something like that. So I think it's kind of a it's a new moment, a revolutionary new moment for the Anglican Communion in a lot of ways. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in what I'll call the sort of um, what the recruiting that goes on. Um, by Anglicans, um, it, it it's it's a it's a at once uh, a subtle change and then a, an, an, on another level a fundamental one. Well, I mean, you brought up a, a, a good question there or a comment, Miles, which is a way to shift this this news into uh, considerations about <clears throat> Reformed and Lutheran um, communions denominations. Um, I mean, Corey, I'll, I'll put it to you. Is there anything, has there ever been a kind of equivalent of to be in communion with this Lutheran, um, particular Lutheran communion, what, wherever it is, is sort of the, the touchstone of being a true Lutheran? Or, I mean, was it yeah. that way from the beginning? I mean, in the, in the 16th century and then it, stopped happening in the yeah, case of presbyterians a- i mean i can't think you know the general assembly of church of scotland um no but later endeavors say with 
ecumenical organizations, say World Council or of churches, or we have a small communion, the inner uh International Council of Reformed Churches, uh, which has largely been formed, I think, by American Presbyterians, but it does include people from Africa and Asia, and they would consider that a kind of representative international body for true ecumenicity, at least, among Reformed churches. But so either from the 16th century to the 20th century, is there a kind of Lutheran um organization that functions the way the Sea of Canterbury has? Um, not really. I mean, in, a, in an informal way, in, in the early 16th century, for obvious reasons, um, you know, churches throughout Germany and, and even beyond kind of look back to Wittenberg for, I mean, not only for, uh, you know, confirmation of ordinance to, to be sent to their churches, or requests for someone to be sent to help reform schools or universities, but Wittenberg was looked to as the you know, the, the place that would be uh, engaged to settle some sort of doctrinal controversy. Um, so that's that's part of the the confusion when when Luther dies. Um, what, who who is the go to guy? Um, and by the end of the 16th century, though, you've you've drafted confessions and subscribed to them. And so there isn't uh, a sort of living authority. Um, so no, there, there's, there's no equivalent to um, a Pope or, or even the kind of lesser first among equals language that, that is used with Canterbury. I mean, the, the only thing that I can think of that, that is perhaps in any way analogous um which is to say not very analogous. Um, so the, the big Lutheran organization worldwide is the Lutheran World Federation. And, and it's the conglomeration of it, what I would call the, the liberal Lutherans. Uh, so in America, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, et cetera. Uh, not most of the European state churches, but there is um, – on the other side of the aisle, the International Lutheran Council. Hmm. Uh, the, so those are the confessional Lutheran churches like Missouri Synod, like some of the so-called mission provinces in, in Sweden and elsewhere. Um, so, I mean, one, one of the things that has, has historically been the case, and I'm, I'm not entirely up on this, so there might be one or two exceptions, um, if a say a, a a Lutheran church in one of the African countries um, is has become really nervous about the way the LWF is going, and they really don't want to be associated with that sort of broad church Lutheranism, they want to be affiliated with the International Lutheran Council. Um, our I think our traditional response is we would love to meet, discuss, full communion fellowship with you. But that cannot happen. You know, full communion cannot happen as long as you remain a member of the, the Lutheran mm. World Federation. Um, and, and that's been tricky sometimes because Lutheran World Federation is always the one that's had the money. So if you're if you're an upstart African or Asian church, uh, a lot of a lot of that American and European money is very, very helpful. So mm. you're kind of in in something of a bind. Um, 
I mean, the, the ILC, I mean, it, it's pejorative language, but it, it, it's run by bureaucrats. I mean, the, nobody knows the name of the president of the ILC. Um, and, and he, as an individual, has no real authority. So it's, yeah, it's not, not really equivalent. It's uh, Bishop Hans Jogvoit. <laughs> okay, Miles knows the name. <laughs> I mean, I don't know there is pronounced Boyd, but I, I don't know how Finnish things are pronounced. So <laughs> it is it is a curious thing the way ecumenicity and international agencies of that um, do function in in ways to give local denominations a kind of luster that they might not have had. Um, if, if you can say you're in this body, so you're better than the, the other ones who aren't in this body. Um, again, something like, um, I can't remember what it's called now. There is a, a kind of mainline reformed, uh, communion that started in late 19th century with people like Philip Schaff at the head of it. And eventually that did move into the world council of churches, but, um, there is a side to to confessional churches that these international organizations of ecumenicity, well, sorry, confessional uh, communions um, do kind of have a power that gives a kind of standing to their members. And, and part of that comes, it means it comes with money and for developing churches or churches in developing parts of the world. That's, that's important. Um, I think a particular say of, um, Carl McIntyre and the Bible Presbyterians had a lot of influence in places like Brazil and Korea, uh, because they were carrying on the fight against communism. They're carrying on some kind of, um, you know, con- conservative Protestantism. Um, and they were rivals to the Reformed Ecumenical Council of which the OPC and the Christian Reformed Church were members, which was largely a North American European with some South African presence. Um, so, you know, these, these organizations look, it's a way for denominations too to find, um, you know, I think to try to do justice to the desire for unity around the world, um, as, but also to tr- sort of find solace from like-minded, um, confessional Protestants in other parts of the world as well. So you, if you're a small little communion in North America, you might look for fellowship elsewhere. Same goes for people in Africa or Asia. But I mean, back to your point too about the way that Wittenberg, Wittenberg, sorry, functioned, say in early Lutheranism. One of the fascinating parts of uh, reformed history in North America is when the German reformed were starting out, they had a controversy over who could actually be a pastor. And they, there were congregations outside of Philadelphia who wanted to make Jacob Bame a minister who was the son of a minister back in, I can't remember, Heidelberg, maybe. Um, he was a school teacher though. So he's well qualified, but he wasn't ordained. So they, but they, and they needed somebody to, to do baptisms, to, to observe the Lord's Supper. At this time, the German reform, when they were, when they needed a baptism of a child, they would go into Philadelphia and have one of the Presbyterians baptize them. Um, but eventually the controversy went in the direction that they needed the reformed churches of New York 
to help with to resolve the, the crisis. And then eventually they had to take it back to Classis Amsterdam back in the Netherlands to resolve it. And eventually the German Reformed Church established its own communion, um, which sort of got around the problem. But the early days of colonial America, depending on mother churches back in, in Europe, is is one way in which, say, some for Lutherans or for Reformed, you could have something comparable to the, the Sea of Canterbury functioning for contemporary Lutherans. Presbyterians, ironically enough, American Presbyterians didn't have that. American Presbyterians kind of started off on their own. They had been many had been ordained back in Ireland or Scotland, but then they just came here and formed their own Presbytery, and they cut out a lot of paperwork. Um, <laughs> This question is is really important because one of the big undertones of the Kigali commitment is the fact that African Anglicans are extremely interested in a close relationship with African Lutherans. Hmm. Uh, And uh, for the past, um, I think, four or five, well, since 2018, so what's that, five years? Um, uh, One of the American Lutheran communions, NALC, uh, which Mm -hmm. is that North American Lutheran communion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. North American um, has been uh, attending. Uh, they send a delegate to GAFCON, um, and so one of the reasons this is is because there's African Lutherans who would like to be in communion with, uh, or some sort of some sort of I guess uh, I wouldn't call it full communion, but some sort of fraternal relationship with American Anglicans. But they don't want to do it with American Anglicans, while American Anglicans are obviously tied to you know, the Church of England or the, the Episcopal Church and one of these groups that's sort of seen as openly, um, uh, you know, th- heterodox theologically. So one of the things that this is a little bit of inter- inter-African um, ecum- irenicism, whatever you want to call it, um, is that uh, African Lutherans and African Anglicans don't overlap geographically a whole lot. And so I think there's a tendency to want to sort of shake hands and make and make peace because there's not a lot of competition between the two African Lutherans tend to be um, in Southeast Africa. Um, and the Anglican strength is in East and West and East and West Africa. So that's a little added sort of um, mm-hmm. ironic element to all this. Well, if, I mean, if, if we were having this conversation in a couple of weeks, I wonder if there'd be anything to add because I don't know if it's next week or the week after, um, the Missouri Synod is having a round of its talks with ACNA. Yes. Um, so mm-hmm. I, it, it'd be interesting to be a fly on the wall there and see to, to what extent Kigali comes up in the conversation and what, what the implications of that m- might appear to be two weeks after the event. And that's, that, I think those talks are done by the, the heads of communion, right? Is that? Yes. Right. So it would be Foley yep. and, and Matt Harrison. Um, one of the things that's been very clear too, the Africans want to make it, uh, the African Anglicans have been much more um, assertive that they are, there's no ecclesiastical differences between Lutherans and Anglicans. Uh, I don't know how Lutheran churches in Africa are run, but even if they are sort of quasi-congregational, there's sort of an explicit recognition that district presidents are bishops and so that this isn't a problem at all. Um, and I've I wonder if that's going to be one of the talking points between 
our respective heads of communities as well. So, Corey, how long have those talks been going on? Is this is this oh, something gosh. new, or is it going on a while? No, uh, I mean off and on for at least a decade. Okay. What yeah, and I'm. I, I'm not sure how often they take place or at, at what level they take place. I mean, I, I think there's, I don't want to say that they've stalled, but, but I think that there is an understanding that these, these conversations aren't going to lead to some sort of imminent church union, but they're not fruitless either. So we should, we should keep talking even if we we don't have a sort of foreseeable timeline in which we anticipate, you know, signing a document and and forming one mm. worldwide church. Yeah, on, so. on the Anglican side, there's uh, when someone's uh, confirmed in the Anglican Church. There's uh, uh, one thing that's gone on is Lutherans are uh, a former Lutheran is confirmed in the Anglican Church a former Catholic and a former Eastern Orthodox um, is received in the church. And so the, the idea is that, well, Lutherans and Presbyterians, because they don't have bishops, um, this person needs to be confirmed by a bishop. Um, and there's not a ton of Lutheran, uh, you know, overlap with Acton and people who, who attend the churches. But I do know that that's been sort of one of the, one of the questions is, uh, well, if, if your church has a district president, what is a district president? They certainly look like a bishop. They talk like a bishop. They quack like a bishop. They, you know, maybe they are actually a bishop. And so this should be rethought. Um, And especially because the Lutheran church does not anathematize the idea of episcopacy. Um, There's, there's uh, sort of a question of reception versus confirmation that I know has been brought up. um, Even our, our parish and and parishes I've been in leadership in. So by the way, are there are there actually Christian churches that anathematize episcopacy? Um, explicitly. Uh, I, don't I mean, Presbyterians I, object, I, but I don't know that they've ever. I think the perception hmm. is that uh, that uh, certain certain objections are uh, de facto declarations that they aren't true churches. Okay, uh, I don't necessarily say I would believe that, but I think there are uh, people who might say that. Um, to declare that there is no Episcopal office is to declare that a, that a church with an Episcopal office is not a, uh, is not a, a true church. So. Right. All right. Let me uh, reset here and I'll give this week's um, or this episode's advertisement before shifting to a, the next topic uh, with, in light of, I take my uh, heritage students bowling I don't, they, they come with me. I don't pay, I'm too cheap to pay for them, <laughs> but we're going bowling this Saturday. So this, this episode is brought to you by the Brunswick Bowling Company, revolution, revolutionizing bowling for over 125 years. Bowling's evolution is constant. Not surprisingly, the same rings true for Brunswick. We understand the business like no one else because we do business like no one else. From standardization of the game to product innovation, manufacturing, and development, our relationship with bowling is a love story over 125 years in the making. And if you're interested in Brunswick, go to the 
brunswickbowling.com and find out about their many products, which include conditioners, cleaners, and cloth to to clean the balls and, and wax the lanes. All right. Enough of that. Can Somewhat. I ask what so, you bowl, Daryl? <laughs> I'm anywhere be... between between one ten and one sixty. Nice. Depending nice. on how many how many strikes, um, how many uh, spares I'm picking up. Um, so there was this article in the Daily Skeptic, which is a website that I go to daily. Um, <laughs> they covered. Uh, the pandemic really well news that was skeptical about the regular news. They're not, they're not anti-vax. They're not conspiratorial in my estimation, but, um, and now the head, the guy who set this up, Toby Young is also the head of the free speech union in England. Uh, so they cover a lot of stuff having to do with political, political correctness. And there was an article at, at the daily skeptic called Wokus Dei. Britain's new official religion, which made the point that with, and people have, have done this, uh, other people have done this, John McWhorter in the United States, a uh, prominent linguist, but also writing about uh, race in America has compared the political correctness to a kind of religion. Um, the guy at Georgetown uh, wrote a good book that also, whose name I'm forgetting, Andrew, not, not anyway. I'd try to find that for the, the so-called show notes. But this is about the replacement of a, a, a new kind of orthodoxy um, that for what had been the confessional religion of England. And and so I thought it was useful for thinking about confessional churches in relation to confessional states. There's some we've had uh, discussions here before about what it means to be a Christian nation. Um so I'll read a couple paragraphs that got me thinking. Um, he says, it's true that in practice, elements of the 1689 to 1828 legal and political settlement were off, were softened and bent over the years. Walpole ensured that the Corporation Act didn't apply to newly founded corporations. Occasional conformity where dissenters took communion in Anglican churches in order to qualify for public office while still predominantly worshiping as dissenters was practiced by some to evade the Test Act. But the basics of what we call the confessional state held. The state had an official religion that it actively encouraged. It discriminated against those who did not adhere to it. And membership of the state apparatus at all levels, including the universities, which were a particularly pronounced example of total Anglican monopoly, was conditional on at least pretending to conform to it. But in a modification to the older idea of church-state relations, where being a subject of the realm and a member of the church were merely two different ways of looking at the same thing, it was prepared to recognize and tolerate the existence of non-adherents and give them some basic rights and freedoms. Whatever else one may say about this, and I'm still reading, it was fairly clear. The beliefs that were officially sanctioned and those that attracted civil and political penalties were openly stated and precisely defined. Adherence to the doctrines, morals, and rights of the Church of England, as expounded in the 39 Articles, the Book of Common Prayer, 
and the church's other official formularies and, and practically expressed by baptism in taking communion a certain number of times per year was the condition of being a full member of the state and many state aligned institutions. So that's a description of the confessional state, at least the Anglican version. One direction to go initially is to, to wonder whether this is this confessional state. I mean, Miles, you could also correct this if you think this gets it wrong. But was there any kind of Lutheran equivalent to this? I mean, would this have been the way a Lutheran confessional state worked? And I'm scratching my own head to think of whether this is how Presbyterianism would have functioned for the Church of Scotland. Um, I, I mean, I, I I don't think that the sending traditions in Scotland were as pronounced in England. There was a, a, an Episcopal Church of Scotland that that carved out certain um, legitimacy, especially after the Glorious Revolution. But um, whether they were barred from Scottish universities or holding uh, seats, I mean, it didn't, at a certain point, it didn't matter since Scotland didn't have a parliament. Um, but so it's hard to think that this worked that way in Scotland. But did it work that way in any of the Lutheran uh, state churches? Um, I, I don't know at the sort of fine grain level, but I mean, po- post Westphalia, I mean, it, it's pretty clear that each territory of the empire get, gets to determine what religion it's going to be. Um, and, and if you don't happen to be the, the religion of the majority or the religion of the prince, you have a right to move someplace else. Hmm. Um, there are some some sort of exceptions, qualifications, and caveats there, but my impression is that, given the nature of the the sort of pluralism of the empire and the much smaller size of the territories, there it's just it's it's not an apples and oranges comparison, where mm-hmm. you know in England for for a variety of reasons you find yourself sort of duck with a variety of confessions or communions that are forced to negotiate privileges, etc. Et um, this it's it's not quite the same on the continent, it, it, at least within the the empire. Mm-hmm. So, another no, way to go. I mean, so is, is this what Christian nationalists have in view? I don't really don't care that much about that i mean I, I my sense is that no one's thinking really this way i'm not even sure the integralists are thinking this way about it but when i when i initially read this though, i was thinking much more well wait <clears throat> whatever this means for politics or a nation do we require this much from our own church members in our confessional churches do um can you can you enforce this level of adherence to liturgy doctrine and polity the way that the church of england and the 
the, the British government could, at least in England. Um, and of course, they had to modify that throughout the 19th century. But it's a way of wondering about how, um, one, how strict our churches are, which we've talked about in some ways. In some, I would, in some ways, I would aspire to being this strict even as a Presbyterian communion, but you can't really demand too much of church members sometimes. Um, and our ordination vows, I mean, our, sorry, our membership vows don't go anywhere near something like this. And I think there are all sorts of gray areas about how many times someone can be absent from church before we start to wonder what's going on. But then even then we don't initiate any kind of discipline for a long time. Um, but maybe Lutherans, we've talked about this before, Lutherans may be more strict uh, than Presbyterians and Anglicans because Presbyterians and Anglicans live with this kind of uh, British imperial system that allowed dissenters certain measure of rights. And there was a kind of flexibility even, even within the empire about this and uh, within the, with the, in the Holy Roman empire and the, the, the nature of the territories and the prince setting the terms of religion, maybe Lutherans, had strictness going all the way back to the middle of the 17th century that even Lutheran communions can, can adhere to today. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, let, uh, let me give you just a couple of examples since, since in the, the, the chunk that you read out here, there was specific reference to the, the British universities. You know, if, if you were not Anglican, you could not attend university and receive a degree. Um, I mean, there, there was an ideal in certainly in the American context when the Lutherans established universities that these were going to be universities for Lutheran students who, who had just done 12 years of Lutheran education in parochial schools. Um, it was never, it was never a strict requirement that you be Lutheran. Um, but I, I don't have any problem at all imagining that if you're at capacity and you've got two applications in your hand and one is Lutheran and one is not, you're going to admit the Lutheran. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's been long gone. I mean, none of our universities have even a majority of Lutheran students. Um, none of them have requirements for chapel attendance um, or, or, or even Sunday church attendance. Um, but the other example is, it, it's a little bit different, but, but at the local parish level, I mean, one, one of the things that I'm certainly not all pastors do this, I, I would, I would go so far as to say good pastors do it. You know, if, if somebody is visiting, that's not a member of your congregation, but, but they are a member of the denomination, um, they, they receive communion and typically on the Monday or Tuesday after that, the pastor will call the, the pastor at the home parish of this visitor just to say hey one of your members was in church uh yeah received communion and this is partly to just let you know hey if the, if if you're wondering why this person was gone it's not because he was sleeping in or golfing he was actually in a missouri synod congregation and and he received communion but also partly just to find out Kind of after the fact, I I hope it was okay to have given him communion. I, mean, <laughs> I, 
I, I hope he's not wasn't here on Sunday because you guys excommunicated him, and I just didn't know that. So, I mean, there's they're sort of informal channels for attempting to maintain church discipline um, throughout the communion. But, but mm, no, I mean, otherwise, I mean, as you said, yeah, if some, somebody's gone for a certain number of weeks. Yeah. Questions are going to get raised and hopefully the pastor or the board of elders is going to follow up on that. Um, but, well, you know, this, this is an argument that I've made. I don't know that I've made it, in our discussions here, but uh, we need ecclesiastical passports so that you can show somebody when you're visiting where you're a member, and then they can determine whether they're going to admit you to the supper or not. And you can get them to stamp it and you can go back home and show (laughs) your own consistory session, whatever, where you've been and, and have some proof of it. Another way around this, I mean, would be to have computer chips that we would insert into <laughs> our forearms or something. And you could just get a reader, but, but it, but it would, you know, we have lots of paperwork for ordination, um, you know, for exams, to, to, pe- people have to sign confessional. I mean, or they sign into, into book uh, books showing that they have subscribed, but we have nothing like this for kind of church membership that would be, you know, it's kind of mechanical, but it would still it would still yeah. maybe raise the profile of what it means to be a, a church member. Um, so, what about it at Lutheran universities and colleges? Do you need to be Lutheran to teach? Nope. You, huh? But the, I mean, again, wow. that that I mean, it used to be the case. Yeah. And so you, um, you might be Lutheran to teach at Concordia. No. Nope. There, there were, um, so even when I first started teaching at Concordia in Irvine, California, um, they and one other of the Concordias still had 100% Lutheran faculties. Um, they were not required to, but, but that was something that they aspired to because they knew that that, that had always been the case. And had only recently begun to slip, um, and and it began to change at Irvine while I was there. And it, and it was subtle at first. You know, we 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 didn't require adjunct faculty to be Lutheran, um, and, and that's fine because they're they're popping in to teach one or two courses here or there that that aren't necessarily part of the core curriculum. Um, and they, they don't get to vote in you know faculty senate and that sort of thing, um, but but from there it just sort of once you open the door it gets opened wider and wider. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. no, uh, right 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 now the the standard is um, you you have to be a Christian in good standing in your denomination. I mean, preference is still given to to Lutherans again if you've got two applicants otherwise equal in all respects one is lutheran one is baptist that they're going to hire the lutheran but how many times do you get applicants that are equal in every respect except that one of the, one of the ironies about <clears throat> this article um or at least an irony that this ar- article points to that i've contemplated many times um is that in a Voluntary church setting, the way the United States has, where 
all churches are are there's no established church. So all churches are have equal footing, have to raise their own support. They can't depend on the government for support and whatnot. And it's here that confessional churches, I would argue, have done better than in Europe. They've been able to be stricter, at least about subscription. Um, they, they can require more because they haven't had to worry about the, their narrowness pinching the state in ways that the state wouldn't would prefer not to be that narrow uh, as states are modernizing and liberalizing and incorporating more people who may not be church members church people who need to work in civil uh you know civil service jobs within the state or whatever so confessional protestants can be more particular in the united states free from the state on the other hand though this article and I think it's fairly accurate in describing the situation in 18th century and early 19th century England. Um, there's more at stake with that kind of confessional church or confessional state. Um, the church in some ways has a bigger profile, bigger standing in society than your ordinary Presbyterian body in the United States or your ordinary Lutheran body in the United States. Great. You guys are really strict, but it doesn't really matter for the affairs of state or government. It doesn't matter for universities, whatever. But back in England, where you actually have a kind of squishiness, no offense, Miles, on confessional matter subscription, say, it's not, it's not as much a part of Anglican identity to subscribe the way Lutherans and Reformed can be really particular about it and and on the lookout for, for people who may be crossing their fingers in certain ways. Um, Just but, one point. So there's the idea that the Church of England was squishy. So you basically had what was it to have a de facto letter of transfer to, to commune between dioceses well into the 19th century. So I, I think this is the assumption that the Church of England was a, was a, uh, like a no rules thing is kind of downstream from the same sort of histori- historiography that like as George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, that basically the church of England died in 1750. And then it was resurrected by evangelicals. Uh, the church of England has actually, uh, there's some guys in uh, historians of the English church would argue it was de facto closed communion until about 1860. No, I, I don't disagree with that, but, it, yeah. but in that same period, I don't know that, the Anglican Church is producing theologians that that today's Protestants are reading because oh they're plumbing the depths of the thirty nine articles in its teaching in its doctrinal teaching in the way that Lutherans and Reformed have emphasized doctrine. So they and, are, but I think some of this is is again it's it's sort of downstream from so people are told well Anglicans didn't write this stuff the evangelicals did. And so they don't even go find it. And actually what I've looked and found is like, there's a ton of guys who write on the articles in the church of England in the 19th century. And one of the reasons we know that is because they're like, Hey, these tractarians are terrible. We got to argue against. (laughs) So you actually have this explosion of research and, and, and what you might call even theology uh, on the articles between about 1835 and 1880. Um, so there's there's actually quite a bit of stuff. Some of it was written by the the Episcopal Bishop of Michigan. Um, 
too. So I, I like, I don't think it might be at the same rate. I mean, one of the things that impresses me about Presbyterians is their publishing apparatus in the 19th century was better than anybody else's bar none. They do that well. Um, and if you, you look at the Presbyterian Sunday school union, Presbyterian publishing house in Philadelphia, they know how to get their stuff out there. I think Anglicans were bad about publishing and getting their stuff out there. But I think that also there was probably more being written than even the average Anglican lay person probably realizes. Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to push back. I'm just trying to clarify what I'm saying. And I've asked some other Anglicans about this. Who is, is there an Anglican equivalent of Charles Porterfield Krauss or Charles Hodge? Is it, is it Krauss first name, Charles? Yeah. I mean, they kind of emerge as as big figures who are teachable, and Krauss may not be read as much anymore as he was at a time, but they kind of are representative figures of their communions, and and I just and this uh, that's, a, that's a good point. I don't know if there is one, and I think a lot of that um, the Bishop of Virginia in 1845 wrote a letter, basically saying no one reads our stuff because we're snobs. And there's only rich people. <laughs> uh, so like there, there's an awareness. I mean, uh, you know, uh, we, Bishop William White and Bishop um, right. Mead, uh Bishop McElwain. So you have lesser figures, but no, right. no one kind of rises to the Hodge level. I'm not even sure I'd say that Kraut rises to the Hodge uh, level. I mean, like, like a figure like Charles Hodge um, and even some of the Southern divines, there's just no one in any of the other Protestant communions that gets that type of celebrity. Um, and because of that, I don't think they get read quite as much. Yeah. Um, so, no, I mean, there's certainly not in, in kind of if you think of Hodge as almost a, an intellectual evangelical celebrity of his time, which he was. There's there's no Anglican that does that, I think, because uh, Anglicans. I mean, the the, the bishops, um, they operate differently than these kind of big, uh, what you, you might call evangelical theologians. And right. And I think that's kind of the point I'm trying to make, right. maybe not that clearly. But Anglicans didn't have to do what a Hodge did because it, certainly in, in England, they didn't have to because of their established status. And so you. You know, you just have this paradox again of confessional churches in America having greater freedom to to be more confessional than their European equivalents, and yet they don't they don't can't enforce it in the same way that that state churches can in in Europe. Yeah, no, that that's true. I, I think that some some of this is religion in the United States. Um, especially in, I, I don't know a better word for non-evangelical Protestant groups, um, Lutherans. And then, I mean, I think a lot of few people would identify the Episcopal Church as evangelical, although it's meaningfully evangelical, at least until the 1840s. Um, when they think of like even the, even the writing of theology, I, there's almost a perception that it's not happening and that these churches are just involved in sort of sort of a ritualistic expression of some sort of traditional religion they've, they've received from Europe. And I think this is almost something that people think, well, that's kind of a good thing. I, I think there's a lot more writing being done by Lutherans, by Anglicans, than, say, the average evangelical realizes 
precise right. calls, they've kind of been told, okay, these are only kind of barely Protestant churches. The real Protestants are over here, and these are the ones you read. And so the evangelical is going to identify like, you know, the George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards, right? Whitfield's an Anglican, but he's only kind of barely Anglican. Um, and so I think there's a lot more kind of meaty stuff being done by those communions, maybe because you're right, because they're still in the United States. Um, but I, I also don't think that that means that they were sort of negligent, even in, in, in the United Kingdom or, or Germany. I mean, some of the, some of the stuff that uh, Walther's sort of teachers, right, is being done in Germany in 1815, 1815, 1820. So um, I, I don't think that that's, I mean, evangelicals corner the market on quote unquote theological writing, at least the perceived corner of the market by 1850 or so. Um, whether that translates into actually like raw intellectual energy, though, I'm not as sure. Dr. Moss, I'll let you get the last word. I've got to go here soon, but why don't you um, resolve this Presbyterian-Anglican dispute? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think that not only did, and I'm thinking of the United States here, um, not only was there perhaps more freedom, but there was also more necessity. So, I mean, Crowth is attempting to define, like, true lutheranism you know and, and hodge and the princeton guys are doing that be, because who else is going to do it you, you don't have a state or mm-hmm. parliament defining that for you uh you don't have an archbishop of canterbury even if he doesn't really have the authority to define it he sort of embodies it at least in the popular perception and so i don't, I don't know that it's as much a matter of freedom like Presbyterians and Lutherans are saying, ah, finally, we're in the United States and we can actually write the stuff that we had always hoped to write. But I, I wonder if it's sort of, oh, crud, we're in the United States and now we've got to write this stuff because <laughs> there there are no other structures of influence or authority to, to prop it up. So we've 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 just we've got to make the argument. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, my the Church of Scotland is is a counterexample in a way for what hap- what's happening in Presbyterianism in the United States. And and the 19th century is the age of moderation and the Free Church of Scotland gets frustrated with that. And so there you have the um, disruption of 1843 in part. And again, it, it, at least in my reading of the state church system, which I have some respect for, but then also have reservations about, it does seem that state church has to be moderate um, in ways that confessional churches outside of the state church system don't have to be. And I mm-hmm. think you're, but I think you're right too, that you do have that kind of need. You don't have the backup of other institutional support from the state or universities that are backed up by, you know, the patrons of the universities are the prince or whomever. They're just not, not that kind of institutional support. Yeah. Well, this has been a curious conversation. I don't know if I took us down a rabbit trail, but um, Anglicans were in the news. Confessional Protestants were in the news, so it was worthy of talking. And uh, I guess I'll bring this to a close and thank everyone for listening. If you have um, questions or comments about the podcast or suggestions, uh, you can contact uh, Dr. Smith at IV Miles 
and his Twitter feed is, is that right? That's right. Right. Yeah, Ivy, Miles. Ivy Miles. And then I'm at old life. Um, one word. And uh, I guess Dr. Moss, maybe he'll become go on Twitter now that he's becoming department chair. <laughs> um, but thanks for listening. And we hope to talk again relatively soon. But don't hold Thanks, your guys. All right. Thanks, Daryl. Cheers. <laughs>